Cinema Jaws is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad. Enjoy the show. You're listening to Cinema Jaw, the greatest movies podcast ever. Recorded on location at Cards Against Humanity in Chicago. My name is Matt Kay, and with me is... Ry the Movie Guy, and sitting behind the glass inside the fish tank is... Phil me and Phil. How's it going, guys? This week on Cinema Jaw, Matt, we go to the cemetery. We take out our lists, and we bury them. Oh, really? I was thinking I would exhume my list. Ah, so I brought a shovel. I see. Yeah. Good thinking. Well, I wrote it years ago. This is a topic near and dear to my heart. The list this week, Jawheads, are top five favorite cemetery scenes. Yes, and we're doing this in honor of, of course, our theme of the month, Stephen King, and the new Pet Cemetery movie. Right. Kind of makes sense. It's actually shocking that we haven't done cemetery scenes with you being a co-host this long, Mm. because this is such... Your topic, Well, buddy. I think the reason is is you always get your way, Ryan, and, <laughs> and I never get a word in edgewise. I had fun doing research on cemetery scenes and graveyards. There's some good ones. There is, yeah. I mean, and it opens it up to a lot of things you don't think about, too. There's a lot of comedy. There's obviously horror, um, you know, funeral scenes, sad mm-hmm. scenes, melodrama, everything. Yeah, so get thinking of your favorite scenes, Jawheads. Besides that, Matt, we also have a great guest who's going to be joining us this week. Yes, we do. Joe Chappelle, he's a screenwriter, producer, director of film and television, perhaps best known for his work on The Wire. He's going to be joining us today. Yeah, he has a long list of credits, so it's going to be exciting to talk to Joe. Right, he's got a new show coming up. We're going to talk all about that. Very exciting. Very exciting. Um, Besides that, we even have more going on. Do we not, Phil? Oh, yeah, this week we are also going to go eye for an eye on Red Joan. And we have two reviews Pet Cemetery and Hellboy. Nice. And since we are going eye for an eye on Red Joan, which is about a spy, I'll tell you that much, I thought this is a good time for you, Matt, to take Joe on in spy movie trivia. Oh, okay. I like my bond, as everybody knows. So Mm. interesting. Yeah, we'll see where that goes. Okay. All right, so let's get this thing uh, rolling. We are celebrating Stephen King this month, and I believe that means, Phil, you have a fact. Yes, this week, in honor of Stephen King, the king of horror, we celebrate with this fact. Stephen King famously dislikes the Stanley Kubrick adaptation of The Shining and once described it as a big, beautiful Cadillac with no engine inside it. Branding the director's vision of Wendy, played by Shelley Duvall, opposite Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance, of course, one of the most misogynistic characters ever put in film. Though King remains a fan of Kubrick himself, he has deemed him a terrifically smart guy behind some of the movies that mean a lot to me. King has reignited his disdain for The Shining in the pages of his novel, The Outsider. In the book, the character is watching Kubrick's 1957 war film, Paths of Glory, because it's better than The Shining. And that is your Stephen King Cinema Jaw fact. I think he's dead wrong about The Shining, man. It's one of my favorites. It's interesting. When you write something, though, that is your creation, and then you see it adapted into something different. Have you read the book? I have not. I honestly haven't either. I've read a lot of uh, King... I've read a lot of his novels, just not that one. Hmm. Gotta give it a, a read. Yeah. I gotta rewatch the movie. It's been a little while. I've rewatched it recently. It's still amazing. Nice. You know what did it was Ready Player One. I, I had to watch, sit down and watch the whole movie again. So. Good reminder to do so. Indeed. 
All right, Matt. So without further ado, we do bring in our guest. His name here is Joe Chappelle, like Dave. Yeah. Right? That's exactly how he introduced himself <laughs> to us. He is the director of An Acceptable Loss, and also he is working on a new program called The Godfather of Harlem. Joe, welcome to Cinema Jaw. Uh, thanks, guys. It's great to be here. I mentioned at the top of the show that you have a slew of credits. You've been working for quite a long time in the television and film industry. Yeah, I mean, I, it goes back to 1994 uh, when I wrote and directed um, an independent film called Thieves Quartet. And since then, I've been working, knock on wood, fairly steadily in uh film and television. Well, one of my questions was, and I guess we can start here. So we have a lot of people that come on, younger guys that have, are, are writing a film or trying to get something off the ground like you did with Thieves Quartet. Your next film credit was Halloween 6. Which I was going to bring up for sure. So, so how, how did that transition from you, you write and direct a small movie like Thieves Quartet to getting, I, I would imagine this is like a studio job, somebody comes to you to direct Halloween 6. What, what transpires there? Well, what happened was uh, Thieves was um, a a very small budget movie shot here in Chicago with all local Chicago actors and crew people we had worked with. Um, My wife, Colleen Griffin, produced the movie. And it was all people we had either worked with uh, in the commercial industry, which is where we we had a small commercial production company at the time, or people we even met uh, in film school up at Northwestern. So that was our crew. It was very small, and this was back in the day where we still shot film and process film, so I think half our budget or a third of our budget was just film stock, which you wouldn't have to pay for today. Um, Labor of Love, uh, which, like I said, was shot in the winter of 1993. We completed it in 94, and this was back in the day where there were very small film distributors who would um, get your film in a theater in New York, and we found, we went to the, this is a film market that no longer exists. It was the IFFM, the Independent Feature Film Market in New York City. We took the picture there. Um, we found one of these very small distributors uh, who literally, after the film opened, went out of business three weeks later. It was one of those wow. things. But because they released it in New York and it, we got reviewed, and the film got pretty good reviews. It got a nice write-up in Variety and um, The Hollywood Reporter and The New York Times. So off that... You started get you know I started getting calls from because I didn't have an agent at the time, people just knew we were from Chicago and they I don't know how they tracked us down but I was getting calls from, uh, like who are you and we'd like to meet you and um, and so I went out, went out to Los Angeles, and I, when I was going out for the very first time because I'd never been there before, uh, a friends of ours who were writers here in town they had an agent, um, and they said when you're out in L.A. you should you talk to our agent. So I was like, great, because I was, I, again, I didn't know anybody. Uh, I went out and met, and actually, this is, the, the story's even better, because it just, it just tells you in terms of how, how, yeah, how luck really comes into playing this kind of thing. Uh, so I had, I had sent the film, was on, this was back in the day when you had VHS, and I sent the, sent the film, FedExed the film out to her to watch. Um, and so this is like, say, on a Friday. So that same Friday... She gets a call from the producer of Halloween, what's going to be Halloween 6, saying uh, their director just dropped out. Um, and who do you have? And she said, well, I just talked to this guy from Chicago. 
Um, no way. That's... It, it's, it literally it was like that. Uh, he, it sounds like he's got a very interesting movie. Uh, he's sending it out to me, and as soon as I get it, I'll send it to you. And I think what happens, she got the, so if we say it was FedEx, FedExed out Friday, she got it Monday. I think she literally just had it messengered over to this guy's, to the producer's office. He watched it, liked it, and then so he forwarded, this is now Dimension Films, which was the Miramax genre division at the time, was in uh, product, it was a product, co-production with them and Mustafa Akkad, who owned, still owns, or well, he's, he's passed away, but his... Um, his estate owns it. His nephew uh, runs <clears throat> it, Malik Akkad, runs the franchise. Anyway, so the producer, a guy named Paul Freeman, forwarded the movie to them. They liked it. And, and it was one of those things where they were, start to, they were supposed to start shooting in, in like two or three weeks. Oh, my God. Yeah, so uh, I got hot. Cause, cause Trial they, by fire. Yeah, because they fired the original directors, what I, was, what, was what I found out, um, and I got hired. And so I kind of came in late, and that's how. But it, but it was really one of those things where uh, it was luck. It was just timing that I had just happened to reach out to this, this, the agent who I ended up signing with, uh, and she had just happened to that day talk to the producer who had just happened to fire director, <laughs> and and then on, so I went so I they, they watched the film Monday I think I went out there I went to New York on Thursday of that week and I was hired by the next week. That's crazy. So it was one of those crazy you know but it's just being at the right place right time and you know. And were you a fan of the Halloween franchise, or, or did you have to, like, really catch up quick and, and watch some of these I, movies? You know, I had seen the first one, of course, which was, you know, it was a brilliant movie. And um, I think I had, you know, actually, I, think, I don't think I'd seen the second one, but I'd seen the third one, which has nothing to do with the other two. Right, yeah, Season um, of the Witch, yeah. And, but I hadn't seen Halloween 4 and Halloween 5, so I had to catch up. Mm-hmm. And then the film after that, you get to work with what I would deem Hollywood royalty, Peter O'Toole in Phantoms. Oh, that was... I mean, what's that? that All was, of a sudden, like... That was unbelievable. I mean, I was a huge Peter O'Toole fan. Um, and if you grew up, you know, when I grew up in the 60s and 70s, that, you know, he's been so many amazing movies, right? So many amazing movies. And I was... But he was... and But also, he'd heard all the... Well, you know, he's a, you know, he's a drinker, right. he's an alcoholic, and he, you know... There and was that movie that he made that was sort of mimicked my, his my life. Favorite my year favorite was, year was definitely right. like... But... but my experience with him was he was, I mean, I loved him. Um, he was always ready. He was word perfect on set. If he, if he, if he did drink, I didn't, couldn't tell. Uh, um, and he was just such a really great, pleasant, pleasant guy. I'll, I'll tell you just one story just be, in terms of you know, just what a professional he was. Sure, yeah. Um, so I don't know if you've seen the movie, but there's a, at the climax, he has this, the, his character, uh, Dr. Flight, has this big speech, and he's calling out to this monster to show itself so they can try to kill it. And um, we shot the, it was in Georgetown, Colorado, is where we shot the movie. And so we shot the night of his big speech, it snowed. But it was beautiful snow, it was that really soft, kind of like, you know, just kind of wet. Fluffy stuff. Fluffy stuff, perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you know, he came out and he, you know, big speech. And, and of course, it's one of those things where you're shooting nights, so it's like one o'clock in the morning. And, you know, and at the time, he was no kid. He was in his 60s. And, but he nailed it, right? So it's like he, he just nailed it. And um, it was like, okay, home run. We got, we got the big speech of the movie. And we got it, you know, and we're done. And he's happy. I'm happy. We're all good. But the next day, and this is back still shooting film when you get dailies. Oh, no. Is this and like a lens cap or something? <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, moisture in the lens. Oh, no. So it, it which basically had a fogging effect on it. Yeah. How bad? So, 
unusable. It, 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 unusable. Yeah. <laughs> unusable. We, so it's like, oh my God, how, how can I go back to talk to Pete? First of all, you know, like the, the, the setting was perfect and all worked. So I, I got to go talk to Peter O'Toole and say, we have to go redo this. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, he's going to, you know, any other actor, you, you know, would just be like, you know, would tear your head off or just be really, really unhappy. So I went, we went into, me and the producer, we went into his dressing room and uh, just started saying, Peter, we have some bad news. And then, you know, the, the scene last night or two nights ago, where it was, we got the dailies back and, we, we, you know, because of the moisture. And before I could even finish the story, he just said, done. Like, I'll do it again. You know, just because he was just a professional, professional and a trained yeah. actor. And I, if I did it once and I'm, I've done stage, I'll do it again. So that was, I mean, that was just told you what the guy, you know, what he was like. And um, uh, so I was like, I, I mean, something like that happens. You know, I was fairly young at the time. And uh, to have him act that way and was like amazing. It was great. That is great, man. So you, you, you've done a lot of TV, too, and, and we'll get to some of the credits there. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about, uh, where the, the line between TV and film is kind of blurring now. How do you feel about that? I mean, well, I, I think it's great. When I started doing television right around the turn of the century, which is a weird way of putting it, but it really was around 2000, you know, TV had a very formulaic kind of a meat and potatoes kind of shooting style and I always tried to coming in even back then is to try to make it cinematic you know I was always every time I go out I try to I direct anything I I say I'm I'm going out and I'm trying to make Citizen Kane I know I'm not going to do it I'm going to come up short but I always come in with that that mindset yeah um I mean in TV certainly on network TV back then is there are limitations you only have so much time you know it's you know, it's, you're just very limited. But within those limitations, I always try to make it cinematic. So I've always tried to bring that mindset to it. And I think what I've, what's been great over the last 20 years since I've been doing it is like that. The more TV has become much more cinematic as 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 as, it's, as time as time's gone There's on. There's no doubt that you've influenced that. <laughs> I'm serious. I, mean, <laughs> I would at least love to, to think that, but I just think it was a degree. Yeah, it was. Just, it's been an oncoming thing, and um, and there's so many great directors now, and. Uh, and showrunners, you know, uh, emb- are embracing that. Where I mean, it's, it's still TV is still a writer's medium for sure, and really both the, the writers and the network they want to see you know the dialogue and close up. That's they really want to see that. But there is room to go, you know, to do wider shots and more, you know, just more cinematic ways of telling a story. For sure, and and one of those, if you just go back uh, not long ago, that sort of bridged that that gap there was the television show Fringe, which yes. had a huge cult following, and it was one of those shows that seemed to the network didn't know exactly how to market it. Was it going to get canceled? And the fans kept this thing alive because people loved Fringe, and and you've directed. I don't know what was it, thirty episodes or something. It I might mean, have been. I was there for you know three years. I, I don't. What know, a great show! It was a it was a great show, and um, and you're right. The, the I, I meet fans today of that show, and they are like the most diehard. I remember uh, when you know as you and you're right, you were correct. Is that every season we finished, we were like, are we coming back? Are we going to get canceled? And I remember Kevin Riley, who was the um, who ran Fox at the time, which was the studio. Uh, he said, you know. You know, Fringe has some of the most dedicated, has the most, I forget how he put it, but basically the most dedicated fans out there, all 50 of them. <laughs> but then all 50 of them wrote, you know, really strong letters to the network saying, keep the show on. And that was really, really it was a fan, uh, it was a, the, the fans really kept it on. I mean, 
of course, the, the network wanted to stay in the J.J. Abrams business because it was a bad robot show, but um, it was with the fans. I mean, that, and, they, and to this day, they're the most you know, vocal, and they love, people love that show. Yeah, they're yeah. out there for sure. And that brings us to The Wire, um, which is this acclaimed juggernaut of a show. I, I, there's universities that I believe even teach classes now Absolutely, yeah. about The Wire. Uh, Entertainment Weekly, uh, a few years back, named it the, the greatest television show of all time. Um, you've directed like six episodes. I want to say one every season, or just about. Uh, when I, I came, I directed. I directed an episode season one, and I, on season three, I came on as a producer director. When I would, and I would end up directing two a year. Okay. Basically. Uh, what was it like there? I mean, when you're reading a script like that, you know you got something very special. In, in the oh way. yeah, I remember um, when I got my script for this, the episode I got season one, which I think was the seventh episode of this the show, maybe the sixth. And so they sent me the scripts. And I was reading them, and I had to read them twice because because I had never heard dialogue like that before. Not and not even not let alone television, but movies. I mean, I never heard not even the drug speak or the gang speak, but the cop speak was all it was like a foreign language. And so I knew reading that I was like, oh man, this there's something here. This is really really good. Um, or at least it was up. It was certainly my wheelhouse in terms of that kind of genre and the cops but I it was it was so original and so fresh it was it just jumped off at the page for me and I remember um when I went there to direct that episode uh we sat you know we, we get an episode and this is one of the few shows where they and they um, which we did where you'd have a cast reading so everybody would come in and you before you go into production that you get the cast and we would do it would do it over the lunch while the previous preceding episode was shooting and you read the script basically right and uh, the cast, they had no idea like that this show was working or not because now remember this is two thousand and two something like that and and if you know pre-social the show, social media it's pre-social media, and you feel the show it's a really slow moving show you know it was one of the first shows where this the season was a story mm-hmm. so by the time I got there see you know episode five or six it was the season, the story is just starting to kick in but the cast was like. Is this working? Is yeah, this is, what's it, going is, is this on? interesting? to watch and and I had seen a couple of the episodes. They sent me some, they sent me some cuts further on. I was like, guys, this is working, but they were they were they weren't sure because it was so different and so not television. So not, I mean, it, to me when I read it is like it would been, it would have been a, and I was a I was I'm a huge Cindy Lumet fan, but it would be like the most incredible Cindy Lumet movie. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of like if you've seen Serpico and Prince of the City, it yeah. was like it was like that. I mean, I've kind of felt like it was in that that world very slow burn very slow burn but the payoff is like really great and um but even to me the slow burn i love because it just you know you can just see them setting the you know if again if you watch the show or the characters setting the characters and just you know setting up what's going to yeah, happen placing all the dominoes placing on all the dominoes and it, was, yeah. it was all so and david simon and all and his writers they had it all mapped out so it was all calibrated and it, it was it was pretty amazing it was just to be a small part of it was awesome that is awesome, man. Totally. Um, we're going to talk uh, some Chicago Fire after the break on the second interview. Yeah. So that brings us to an acceptable loss. Your your wife was kind enough to come grace us with her presence on <laughs> Cinema Jaw and talk about the film. And, of course, the movie stars Jamie Lee Curtis. And you hadn't done a movie for a while after you'd done all this television. Yes. What was it like to switch back gears into into TV? I it, mean, into film. It was great. It was something I've been wanting to do for a long time. I mean, I've loved working in television, but as I said, it's it's a writer's medium. It's and you know and. Uh, what do you mean by that? It's the well. So the showrunner, you know, the, the head writer on the show. If you've heard the term showrunner, sure, of course. It's 
it's their vision. You know, so as a, as a director or as in my case, a producer director, you come on, you're, you're fulfilling someone else's vision. Mm-hmm. And that's the job. And that's what I love doing it. But to go back into a film where I was the, you're the, the writer director, I would, you know, and for good or for bad, I could own it. And, um, and that's what I really wanted to do. And I also, what I have, you know, having worked on Chicago Fire for a number of years, and I just wanted to do something where I did that didn't adhere to a formula. And a lot of network tele that's what network television is. There's sure. you know, formula, you, you know, every act break, there has to be something dramatic that happens. And I kind of right. wanted to go back to the slow burn type way of storytelling. And that's, those are the movies that I like. Um, so it was just an opportunity for me to, I mean, I, I'm so fortunate. I feel so fortunate I was able to do that again. Um, and so it was just, it was very liberating to like, you know, to sort of set a tone and set a look and commit to it. And, uh, and I didn't look back, which was, which was, it was, it was scary and, but it was great. That's awesome, man. And two strong female performances in the film, which I think is the right time for that, you know? I mean, I, it's, it's it, the story behind that is, I, the, I'll try to tell it quickly, the, 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 the origin story for the, the movie, An Acceptable Loss, was I had watched um, two Errol Morris documentaries. Uh, one was uh, um, The Fog of War, which is about Robert McNamara, who was sure. the Secretary of Defense during Vietnam. And the other one was The Unknown Known, uh, which is about Donald Rumsfeld, who was Secretary of Defense during the second Iraq invasion. And if you've seen those movies, it's like it's both those men looking back upon these wars or catastrophes that they oversaw. And what struck me was the contrast between the two guys, because McNamara, when he looks back on his war, was like, you know, he doesn't come out and say we're sorry, but... There's clear regret. Clear regret, guilt. You know, he's, he's burdened by guilt. And you could tell he could take it to his grave with him. And then you contrast that with the Rumsfeld movie, where he was like, you know, we knew what we do, and... I would do it again based on what I knew. I have no, no looking back, no, no sense of maybe we blew this, maybe. Anyway, I just thought that was a really cool dynamic to explore in a movie. And then so when I pitched the idea to Colleen, my wife producer, she thought it was pretty interesting, but she said, what if it was two women? And I was like, why not? Because the timing seems to be going in that direction. Uh, and this is back, you know, the, the, when the, I broke the stories back in 2015 or so, so it seemed like... Hillary Clinton was going to be president, so I was like, "Let's, you know, let's why not? Let's sure. embrace it." Uh, so yes, but to have those two two characters to be women was, I think, still is fairly unusual. And what I do like about it is, especially, is they're not saints. You know, they're they're both they're they're flawed three dimensional characters. I agree. Yeah. Yes, and you can find an acceptable loss on video on demand. I believe pretty much everywhere. It's correct? everywhere now. I think like as of today or something, it went everywhere. So please check it out. Yeah, oh, I highly encourage it. What I do is I, I have a Roku. I don't know if you use this feature, but you can actually, there's a search feature on the Roku. I'm using the Fire Stick now, man. Oh, I gave okay. up Maybe on the Roku. Fire Stick has this too. Okay. But it, I'm saying you're not even in a, a particular app. You oh, know? yeah. You're just using the Roku and you search whatever movie. So you put in an acceptable loss hey. and it tells you everywhere you can purchase it, what the cost Dude, is. It's the best. You what gotta what get, world we live in. Brian, <laughs> you got to get a Fire Stick because then you could just say, hey, look. Alexa, play an acceptable loss, and bingo, it pops right up. Oh. You don't even have to touch anything, man. Wow. That could be expensive, though, if you just start pulling any title out of the air and they get charged for it, right? No. <laughs> oh, oh. If, 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 it, if it does uh, require a next step to, to pay, it'll stop right there. Oh, okay. But it'll bring you <laughs> to that page. There. You don't have to search for it or try to type. And okay. It's just so much more convenient, Ryan. Yeah. 
Get on board. Good stuff. Um, so Joe is going to be sitting in on this entire jaw. If we wanted to guide the jawheads, the listeners, to a website, where would you want them to go? An acceptable, acceptable loss to f- website? To, to learn more to, about to what learn you more. got. I, I think it would be the, um, the IFC website. I, the IFC is the, excuse me, is distributing the movie, IFC Films. Uh, go to their website, and it will direct you where how you can go about and look at the movie, rent the movie. Awesome. Cool. Or yeah. buy the movie. Even more with Joe. we got to talk to Chicago Fire and plus uh, Godfather of Harlem on, on the second interview. Okay. Now, uh, we like to end our guest interviews, Joe, with a silly cinema cue. Phil, do you got something good for Joe? Yeah, Joe. Uh, so since it's not only Stephen King month, but it's also Cemetery Week, uh, in honor of Pet Cemetery, I wanted to ask you uh, what the lamest reanimated pet would be. Because not every pet's scary, right? Like a goldfish <laughs> flop- flopping up. Nothing. You ever see those magic carp, Phil? I know you have. Why, well, who do you ask? Why, why, did you forget who's back here? <laughs> the lamest. Yeah. Pet rocks, Tamagotchis, they well, all you're count. You're taking all the good ones, man. Yeah, really, yeah. Sorry, so, uh, sorry. I w- I, my first instinct would say turtle because they're so slow, but then I think, <laughs> what was the gamma? What was the, um, the Japanese monster? Uh, Gamora. Gamera. Gamera. Gamera, right? So yeah. Gamera was kind of scary, so I, I can't use Gamera. So I'll, <laughs> I mean, let me, can you get back to me on that one? Yeah, of course, right. man. It's a good I mean, question. An, an, an undead Tamagotchi, though, that's kind of terrifying. It would probably just nag you about cleaning up its poop. Who yeah. knows? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Joe is going to be sitting in on this entire jaw. He has his top five cemetery scenes. Have, have you filmed in a cemetery? Uh, I was thinking about that today. Uh, yes, I know we shot a couple uh, cemetery scenes on Fringe. Ah. And, uh, and maybe on Fire, too. But definitely, I remember being up because we shot that in Vancouver, and there was one couple episodes. We were just one specific cemetery we'd always go to. And actually, on, the, on this new show, Godfather of Harlem, uh, we shot in a cemetery in New, in New York City. Nice. We're lucky living here in Chicago. There's actually some beautiful cemeteries that are uh, really fun to walk through and look at all the monuments and stuff. And What yeah. the hell are you talking listen, about? Listen, fun <laughs> to walk through? You might think it's a little macabre, but the, the one, and it's not the Graceland Cemetery. It's um, You're talking about the one in the city here? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the name of it. There's but. a there's a nature preserve in there, like hiking trails and stuff. The one that, that goes along Western Avenue right. at like Pratt, Rose Hill, uh, what, Rose, Rose Hill, Hill. Rose Hill We're Cemetery. Being told it's Rose Hill. Uh, there's like Civil War veterans in there. Uh, tons of history, hundreds of years worth of history. And yes, I find it enjoyable to walk through and look at all the. So that's art. what you do on your day off. <laughs> Yeah, bring oh. the kids, make a picnic. All right, it's let's fun. let's continue on, Phil. Eye for an eye. This week, eye for an eye. Red Joan. The story of Joan Stanley, who is exposed as the KGB's longest-serving British spy. This is based on a true story of a spy whose real name was Melita Norwood. She worked undercover for almost 40 years. The film stars Judi Dench, and it's directed by Trevor Nunn, who is best known for directing stage work in London. Ryan, we're going to throw it on over to you. I love me some Judi Dench. Mm-hmm. Um but I think we've seen a lot of these um, spy movies. Even though this is based on a true story, I'm usually a, a sucker for those. Yeah. I don't know. I watched the trailer for this one. I'm not really that interested. How could you say that? You're, I know. you're not into genre films? I mean, hey. That's it. Okay, then I'll go next. Yeah. Ready? Interested. Oh, wow. I mean, who doesn't want to see Judy Dench, M herself, turn turn heel you know be be the bad guy for a change I, i'm i'm ready for that big time joe interested thank you joe you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> uh i the spy genres are my favorite genres um she's a great actress trevor nunn i don't know if he's directed any movies before i do know him from this from his stage work so that might be 
interesting. It might not, but uh, I'll just I'll make it. In, I'll say it's interesting just for the subject matter. Hmm. Phil, where do, where do you land? Um, <clears throat> I, I I hate to do this to you, Rye, but I'm also pretty interested <sighs> too. Uh, I'd say one of the few things that I like more than a spy movie is a, a female-led spy movie. I think, right, like Atomic Blonde was awesome. I don't think it's going to be quite that good, or at least entertaining. Well, I doubt Judy Dench is going to be throwing <laughs> yeah, any punches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, well, I, well, there's, I don't know. But there's something cool to me, uh, much like um, an, an acceptable loss, like there's something cool about how much we don't see sure. this kind of thing. So I think this one's more Tinker Taylor kind of speed. Right. Yeah. I agree. But that's great. More Tinker Taylor. Around, Dench, I just looked it up. 84 years old. No. Yes. Yes. Wow. Wow, She's, I would not have guessed that. No. And still helming a film, that's great. That's great. And killing it. Absolutely. All right, three interesteds, one ignore for Red Joan. We'll try to get a review out for the Jawheads, man. We will, for yes. sure. Uh, speaking of new movies, in 2013, Carrie became the first Stephen King adaptation to get a remake. Then two years ago, 2017, we got a box office smash with the remake of It. So why not dip back into the King Library and pull out another film to update? This time around, we have Pet Cemetery, a film originally released in 1989. Matt, I was not a very big fan of the 89 version, so I happily made my way to the back of the house for a cemetery visit once again. Let's see if this film's resurrection was a smart idea or a sinister shell of itself. Daddy. Who's... <laughs> What's going on? Hug your daughter. I should never have shown you that place. Your child is not the only thing that will come back. The barrier is broken. The film opens with an innocent family of four moving into a new house in Ludlow, Maine. Jason Clark plays Lewis, the father of the family and doctor working at the university hospital. In no time at all, their young daughter, Ellie, sees a creepy procession of kids bringing their dead dog to a cemetery. She discovers there's a pet cemetery behind their house. It is here, Matt, she also meets their next door neighbor, Judd, played by John Lithgow. When Lewis discovers the family's cat has been killed by a car, he decides to hide that fact from the children. With the help of Judd, he buries the cat in an ancient burial ground. The next day, to Lewis's amazement, the cat returns. It's more aggressive and something seems off, but the cat is alive again. Now the question is, if something were to happen to one of his children, would he do the same thing? Matt, for starters, did this updated version do anything to improve on the original? And secondly, with you already knowing the story, was the film able to scare you? Uh, I'll, I'll take the second part of that question first. I think there's nothing more horrifying, and I mean that in the truest sense of the word, than, than bad things happening to kids. Like, I can watch the scariest, most gory, disgusting, or even disturbing horror movies as long as there's no kids in it. The second I see a kid on screen... I, I am just aching, and, and maybe that's the dad in me coming out. I don't know, but I lost my taste for that. Like, the mist devastated me at the end. Did, did this movie approve, improve upon things from the original? Absolutely. The production values alone drastically improved. I mean, 
listen, the, the cast in the first one, not so good. Fred Gwynn, he was resurrected to, to, to act in that movie. I love the guy, but it was definitely Fred Gwynn past his prime. Um, the ending and the changing, just uh, this is right in the trailer. I'm not spoiling anything. It's not Cage who dies. It's Ellie who dies. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that works better. It makes more sense. Uh, she's the one that's connected with the neighbor Judd. Uh, she becomes the catalyst for all the bad things that happen subsequently uh, from her death onward. It, it just made more sense to me, even though the more tragic death would be the the, the toddler um, hers actually made more sense. And then the ending, I don't want to spoil it, but wow, very effective. I mentioned The Mist before. This is up there with The Mist. It's a very bleak, dark ending, but I found it delightful. I do think that the overall atmosphere of this movie is a little creepier than the original. Yeah. Right? I, I don't think this is a movie where it jumps out and scares you. There's a few moments, but like a cat really. jumps out of nowhere, you mm, weren't expecting it. It wasn't too bad, but I think the overall atmosphere, especially once when Ellie comes back from you know some, being resurrected, oof. that entire vibe of her being in the house, Yeah. and at one point she's in the bathtub, and Jason Clark is, is brushing her hair, and it's all knotty, and there's just something about that moment, it was just so creepy and gross. How about when he's laying in bed next to her, and he starts to really... Uh, the, the gravity of the situation is finally sinking into him. He's not like, I just need to see my daughter again at any cost. Okay, you've done it, and now you're next to your uh, resurrected zombie daughter in bed trying to get her to go to sleep, reading her good night stories. It's, uh, it's a heavy moment. Now, there are flashbacks in this movie to the wife has a sixth sister. Yeah, Zelda. And, yeah, Zelda. And I couldn't remember in, if, if it, those were that present in the original. Yes. They in, were? In the book and in the original movie, yes. So there were flashback scenes like that. Yes. Well, I thought these were pretty graphic of her illness, just her, her bony body. I think they really amplified that this time around. Well, I mean, if you go back to the original, it's more like Cronenberg-esque sort of bubbly makeup. So they did a better job on the makeup and prosthetics in this one. Um, but no, it was there in the original. Did Judd murder the cat... Yeah. Church, this is your question, mm-hmm. to have a reason to actually go back past the deadfall. Well, this is speculative on my part, but it seems rather convenient that Judd is the one that finds the body. I hope I'm not spoiling anything. You, you've seen this, the original at least, Joe? I, I read the book okay. a long time ago. Uh, but I'll tell you, you, the way you guys are talking about it, I really, you're making me want to go see the movie. That's it's, good. It's okay. <laughs> it's, it's definitely, we'll get to our recommendations at the end. So Judd, later in the film, is this spoiler territory no, here? No, it's okay. okay. He, he says that he, you find the sweetest reasons to go back when, when he talks about why he brought um, the doctor up there to resurrect the cat. So did he kill the cat is hmm. the question. I never thought, I, I don't think there's that deep of a twist in the movie. No, I, don't, I didn't see that at all. Well, but now that you, you bring that question up, it's interesting to look at that, that scene in particular and wonder, yeah, maybe that was his motive. Hmm. That's interesting. interesting. Right. Did you notice the Easter egg, Ryan? No. All right. So the, the death of, of Ellie, she gets hit by a truck, just like the original film. Uh, they live, unfortunately, right next to a two-lane, 60-mile-an-hour <laughs> highway that is like a trucking lane. And, and no fences around any no. yard. <laughs> why, would, why would you have fences? Or why would you build the house, like, far back from the road? Um, so, yes, unfortunately, Ellie gets hit by a truck. In the original movie, the driver is listening to Sheena is a punk rocker. The Ramon song. That's why that's st- stuck in my brain. It's one of my favorite songs. In the remake, he is texting. Who's he texting? Sheena. Wow. 
Yeah. Nice. Nice little Easter egg there. No, I, I completely missed oh, that. I caught that right away. Yeah. All right. I was going to go uh, with a question for the casting of John Lithgow, who plays Judd in the movie. I felt... And maybe I'm off on this. He's too familiar of a face to put in a, in a horror film. I felt too comfortable with him. When I'm in a movie in a dark theater, I want to be jolted. And something about John Lithgow being there made me feel safe. I don't know if that makes any sense. Did you have that at all? Well, honestly, I'd feel more safe with Jason Clark, um, who I'm becoming a big fan of, actually. Holy crap. That guy can do any accent. He's Australian, and he pulled off an East Coaster beautifully. Beautifully. His accent's... Perfect. He was okay here at best. I love Jason Clark. A little too much credit. Uh, he, he was terrible in the aftermath earlier this year. I disagree. No. You're so wrong. No way. He carried that movie. It's a good movie. Okay. Uh, John Lithgow. No, I don't ever feel comfortable with John Lithgow. He's a complete, unpredictable wild card of a dude. And he's getting older now. He's looking kind of grizzly, especially in this movie. He let his beard grow and stuff. Uh, they, they had some, some age makeup on him to just make him look like a bit dirty outdoorsman, if you will. I don't feel comfortable with him. He's so he's so wild. He could be very very funny, and he can be very very scary. John Lithgow has such a range that I did not get any comfort from his presence. Hmm. Favorite element or scene in this movie? Favorite scene would have to be the ending. It's just so out of left field. Uh, I didn't know it was going to be there. As you know, it's different from the original and different from the book. So what I, I, I really that. liked, and maybe uh, this was in the original, I don't remember it as well either. Is that that procession of kids bringing their uh, dog to the cemetery? Not in the original. And and they wear those creepy animal masks, and that whole shot, I thought, because this happens very early on in the film, maybe the first fifteen minutes, really sets the mood for the movie. Mm. Yeah, I like that too. Enjoyed the heck out of it. You got a movie poster quote at all? No, I didn't come up with one. Did you? Uh, I went with uh, time to bury this story. Ah, boo. How many jaws are you giving this? I'm going two, two and a half jaws. You're, two and a half jaws? You just took it apart. It That's, was okay. It was better than the original, I think. But I wasn't a huge fan of the original. Yeah. Well, I, I say this is a three-jaw movie. There you go. It's a, what a great month for horror. Strangely enough, it's April. I don't know. And, and Joe, I had a question uh, bringing on, putting on your director hat here. When you're directing something, since you've done some, some horror, it seems like a lot of times these, these movies, you've got to have the right uh, beat to, to bring the tension and or the scare, right? And, and does that happen more in the editing or when you, you, you know, hey, this needs an extra second or two to really build the, the oh, tension? Oh, yeah, that's the kind of thing you find in editorial, of course. And you just... you, you if it's a jump type scare, you play with it and should it come on, you know, literally. And, and it's amazing how frames make a difference. Like, you know, like just 12 frames, half a second. If something's off a half second, it can either make or break. Make it make or break a jump. And then also, uh, it's what's done with the audio with it. You know, if there's if the sound effect or the music cue, whatever it is, backing it or not, letting things, sometimes it's just as if more effective letting it just be dry. You go and you shoot something like that. You know you got to get the pieces you're going to need to put it together. But really, it's you'll start find you'll, you'll fine tune it in post. Yeah. All right. So three jaws for Pet Cemetery from Matt K. Two and a half from Ride the Movie Guy. It's I, a damn good horror movie. Yeah. I think so. Okay. I mean, you're more uh, the the horror guy. So better than it? No. 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 I'm not see, even close. Uh, I'm also. I I like the original 1990 version of it better. I think okay. it, it is too big of a story to fit into one movie, and I guess they didn't, right? They broke it up into two. Hmm. No. I have to get back to you on that one. Probably yeah, I not. I got a clear answer. Not as good as that. Not it. as good. Okay. Yeah. 
Fair enough. It's closer for me, but I still think maybe it's better. Well, it's just a scarier character. Definitely. Does bring us to our top five this week. And in honor of this Pet Cemetery review, we are doing our favorite cemetery scenes. Uh, we like to let the guests start. And we always ask, was this a, a difficult list for you to come up with? Or was it fun and you knew no, what you were going with? No, it was fun. It was, it was interesting because you know, when, when I heard the topic, I was like, oh, well, the first thing was, well, they're going to be all horror films. And, but then when I started thinking about, when I started thinking, okay, what cemetery scenes do I remember in movies? It, it was not that. I mean, it became, it, it was much, a, a much wider it, list. It opened than I ever, up to it you. It opened up to me. I have almost no horror movies on mine. Only one do I have a, a horror film. So. Me, my, my too. Me too. Yeah. I have one also. <laughs> so let's get started with your number five. My number five there. is, and I, I thought, well, it's going to be my, uh, my obligatory horror picture. It's the, uh, the original Night of the Living Dead. You know, that, the, the opening scene of that movie, right? It's a pretty scary. Thank you. Can, can I just tell you a quick story? Yes, please. Before you got here, <laughs> me and Ryan were talking, and I'm like, how many zombie movies do you have on this list? And, and he's like, none, zero. And I'm like, well, I mean, there's the Night of the Living Dead. And he's like, no, I watched it again today. It's not that good. <laughs> <laughs> but part of that I was trying to goat mad on. You know, I like to get I mean, him going. Th- there, I, mean, I, I thought of other great horror, you know, like The Omen. You know, there's really like a lot of good horror, you know, cemetery scenes. But, uh, but I, that's, my, that's my only, that's my number five. That's my first one. My, and no, hold, hold right there. What? Hold we're going to go. We're going to go around oh, like five, five, five. Yeah. Four, four, four. Thank you for stopping me before <clears> I. That just getting back to Night of the Living Dead. Such a beautiful scene. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Absolutely. One of one of the best things ever committed to celluloid, in my opinion. I mean, it's utterly rewatchable, and it looks like it was shot yesterday. It's great. I mean, I'll tell you about the thing. So it was made in '68, '69. Was that when it was? The throw it in made? the fish tank. No, no. We'll, we'll throw that in the fish tank. Yeah, but. When back when I was a kid, watched that movie. That was a movie. So this is back. The only way you could watch that movie when I was young was either a midnight show, which was I was too young to go see it, or it would be on some late night, like you know, like what's the the Sven U- or Sven Cooley type thing, <laughs> yeah. uh, and you'd have to stay up you know at home and watch it by yourself. And and it was and that movie is so raw. And back then the prints were always, which actually kind of added to how creepy it was. You know, the prints were beat up and it was scratchy grainy. and the grainy. <laughs> and I remember watching that when I was ten, and it scared the living. Yeah, I won't say that. Uh, yeah, it just it's you know it was yeah. it just had it was just it, that and that whole movie just kind of grabbed even with commercials thrown in back then. It's the scariest movie I think I've ever seen. Wow. I I don't disagree with you. Uh, I honestly also had Night of the Living Dead at my number five, just because I wanted to make sure we talked about it. But uh, if I have to sub one out, I'll go Army of Darkness. It's kind of a go-to. Bruce Campbell goes to collect the Necronomicon, and he he famously botches the the, the magic words to get the book. And then the dead rise, and all hell breaks loose. Oh, it's a great, great scene. It's an amazing scene. We got Ryan for sure. My number five might not be the best uh, movie, definitely not the best in the series, but uh, one heck of a cemetery scene. Two thousand and three, the film Terminator Three: yeah. Rise of the Machines. Uh, famously, Linda Hamilton not in this movie, right? And Arnold Schwarzenegger is back, and her character Sarah Connor has died, and so at one point they talk. They have to go to the graveyard cemetery to visit Sarah Connor's grave. Well, it turns out what she did was put all the guns and weapons in her casket. And you get this wonderful scene where they pull the casket out and, and, and Ar- Arnie's actually holding it on his shoulder. 
<laughs> you know, he's holding the casket, walking out with and a minigun in the other and hand, and a minigun in the other hand, and he just starts firing while he's holding this um, casket. And eventually, they get in the hearse. The other Terminator, who's a female Terminator at this time, pops up at the right time. A chase ensues through the cemetery. The headstones exploding. Wow, is it good fun? <laughs> that is that is fun right there. That's, That's a, a Terminator scene. movie. That was my number five, Terminator Three. Your number four, Joe. Uh, so this is me trying to branch out from horror and just look for thinking about cemetery scenes, which first came right into my mind, the first one. Uh, so from my number four is the 1951 version of A Christmas Carol. Uh, it's a British made with a, uh, the, the guy who played Scrooge was Alistair Sim. And the scene where, you know, ghost number three comes back and spirit number three takes him and shows him his gravestone. Yeah. Uh, really effective. It really is. I've not seen that version. That's the best for, for me. That's the best mm-hmm. version. It's really good. Really you, atmospheric. You don't like the Jim Carrey version? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I did not, actually. <laughs> but uh, it's really atmospheric and just really kind of creepy. The Muppets Christmas Carol's pretty good. Come on. We, that is Colleen's <laughs> favorite Christmas movie. Michael Caine is Scrooge. Colleen, every Christmas, really marches me and our children <laughs> down in the basement to watch that Christmas. Good for you, Colleen. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm a fan, too. All right. uh, So sitting at number four, guys, I'm going to be honest. I got a couple of zombie zombie movies on my list here. Maybe I'm not too uh, inventive, but I love this scene so much. I rewatched it again today just to make sure it's as great as I remember. Peter Jackson did a movie called Dead Alive. I believe it was originally titled Brain Dead, but it's Dead Alive here in the States. There is a scene where the, the main character is burying his his zombie zombified mom and some punks come and attack him in the cemetery and they, they start peeing all over her headstone and stuff. <laughs> you know, they're drunk punks and they're they're fighting they're bullies essentially. And the priest comes out, he's like, What's this going on in the in the in the graveyard? And wouldn't you know it, he, he happens to know Kung Fu. So he says, I kick ass for the Lord and then he starts laying into these punks. Just then, the zombified mom comes out of her grave, bites one of the punks. He becomes a zombie in like 10 seconds. Bloodbath ensues. Limbs come off. The priest is beating them with the limbs. If you haven't seen this movie, you just have to. You just have to see it. I, I, I saw it back when it came out. I just remember being so over the top. It was, you know. Way over the top. <laughs> Funny. But yeah. that scene in particular. I mean, it's really all about that line. I kick ass for the Lord. And then the priest starts doing kung fu. Good stuff right there. I went comedy with my number four. I tried to come up with a, a really funny moment that took place in, in a cemetery and uh, rewatched this scene at work and I was laughing out loud. I don't know if we've ever really talked on this movie on Cinema John. 1991, it's a spoof movie called Hot Shots with Charlie Sheen and Lloyd Bridges. And this was a spoof on the movie Top Gun. Among other action other genre. actions, right, but right. that was the main storyline was was Top Gun, and the scene here is uh, they they go to a, a funeral and they go to the cemetery and it already starts off screwballish. So like Lloyd Bridges walks in and says, you know, God, I love a good funeral, and and then there's uh, people selling peanuts, you know, concessions, you know, but the the he's completely out of it and he's off to the side and they do a shotgun salute and this tips him off where he thinks he's like back in the war and he thinks he's being fired upon so at this point he pulls out his gun uh opens up the casket to get cover starts firing at the shoulders i forgot all (laughs) about that dude (laughs) eventually he throws a grenade i mean even people are running it's over the top screwball comedy that you would appreciate from a a lloyd bridges in a hot shot movie (laughs) he was great you have no right to make fun of any more of my picks (laughs) At all. Hey, 
I watched it again. It's very funny. All right. Hot shots. I'm sticking with it. Into our threes we go, Joe. Okay, my number three is actually a tie. And I'm going to fish tank because I don't remember the actual years of the two movies. But they were both this, they were both cop movies or cop gangster movies from the mid to late 80s. Um, and we can fish tank it. But the, it, it, so it's a tie between Internal Affairs, which was a Mike Figgis film director, uh, which had Richard Gere in it. I don't know if you remember that movie. I do. And mm-hmm. there was a, there's a really kind of warped funeral scene. It's uh, Richard Gere, it's this It's the funeral for William Baldwin, who is a cop that the Richard Gere character has killed because he was going to basically go to internal affairs and they were into bad stuff. And But the Richard Gere had been sleeping with the, with the William Baldwin's, what, the character of, of his wife. And like she you goes, do, yeah. And she goes nuts. And she has this, you know, she during the funeral, she kind of attacks Richard Gere because she knows really what went down. And then Andy Garcia is there watching it. And it was just, it's this kind of like kind of crazy, weird scene. And so I saw that, and then shortly thereafter, I, this, my, which is my tie here, it was Abel Ferrara's King of New York, which has another pre, uh, cemetery scene where it's about it for a dead cop. And then that's and there's been in that movie, it's you know Christopher Walken um, has this drug gang which the cops have declared war on. He's declared war on them. And it's just, they've been going back and forth. Um, and in this scene is uh, Christopher Walken pulls up in the in the in the in the limo, and basically David Caruso, who's the cop. He shoots him in the head with a shotgun at, during the funeral. Oh, jeez! <laughs> and it's—I uh, don't know if you—if you haven't seen *King I of New York*, this is a movie. This got an amazing cast. It's Walken. It's Lawrence Fishburne. *King of New York*. *King of New York*. It's—it's—it's it's, it's a really cool gangster picture. Yeah, it's like up there with like the best mob movies of all time. It's, it's and it's so crazy good. Um, anyway, so I saw those those two cop movie, two cop you know movies, bad cops. Kind of not animal fish tank the dates, but I just remember being kind of jumbled together. Those they, they kind of both came to mind, but they were and it's interesting because there were daylight f- funeral scenes, which, but the subject matter and where those two scenes came in their respective movies was really great. Wow, cool, good pick right there. All right, that swings it to me at number three. I'm getting away from zombies, uh, and I'm going to the '90s, early '90s with Heather's. There's a couple funeral scenes in this movie. And not to take away from uh, I Love My Dead Gay Son, which was an awesome line, <laughs> but the original funeral... Yeah, that is great. The original funeral of the first Heather, who dies, uh, is a pretty funny scene because they all, want, all the students, one by one, walk up to her casket and say a prayer, and the audience is privy to their inner dialogue, or monologue, I guess, and, and you hear each of their prayers, and, and they become escalatingly ridiculous and funny. Like, the, the dumb jock guy is just like... You know, saying, why'd you have to kill such a hot girl, God? And, like, <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's great scene from a great movie. It is a great movie. My number three, I do go horror. Here's my big horror pick, and, and it's maybe a cheesy horror at best. Matt, you'll hopefully like this one. Friday the 13th, part six, Jason Lives. I approve. And the reason, why, <laughs> the reason why I picked this one is this, this throws me back to my childhood when you would rent these kind of movies on, on VHS. And it was, you know, me and a buddy, it, house was dark, rent it, you put it on. And the movie opens with these two guys. The premise basically is that Jason is dead at this point, but they don't believe that he's completely gone. So their idea is that they're going to... Uh, dig up the body and right. actually it's Tommy Jarvis who's been okay. traumatized by Jason I don't know my Friday the 13th <laughs> I know I've missed some of them so he's actually going to burn Jason's body so that he right. can never come back well they, they dig up his body which is already creepy and seeing the you know the right. dead there's, body there's underground maggots and worms right and it's really the, the good 
80s gore. I through what year that movie came out also, Phil. And so what ends up happening, though, is they put a, a metal spike through his body. Right. They're so angry with Jason. Right. They turn their back, and lo and behold, maybe it's the same lightning bolt that sent the DeLorean back into uh, time and mm-hmm. in, in Back to the Future. That lightning bolt strikes that metal post and actually breathes life back into Jason. That's all it takes. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it? we all saw Frankenstein. You can just bring someone back to life with lightning. It's and then, <laughs> and that's where the movie goes. All of a sudden, we get a we get a fresh Jason. He's back. What I, a scene, though. Great scene. Yeah, that was my number three. Friday the Thirteenth. <laughs> Part six, Jason Lives. Never thought it would be on one of my, my top five. <laughs> I lists. never thought it would be on one of your top fives either. When and at do- number three, when Jesus. When you're doing this for almost 10 years, it's, it's bound to come up, I guess. <laughs> and, and, yeah, about time, actually. Yeah. All right, into our twos, Joe. Two, I went with a Western, and it's kind of, it's, it speaks for itself. It's the climactic shootout uh, of the good and the bad and the ugly. Mm. Yes, yeah. It's, how it's, classic. How classic. It speaks for itself, and in the build-up to the you know, in that movie, to that confrontation <clears throat> with those three guys, um, you know, it's much against more I can say about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just remember watching it because I, I, a lot of times I'm catching up on some of the classics. Mm-hmm. So this isn't even that long ago. And I one of them that I had to watch and finally got around to seeing it. And it, it just lives up to the, oh, you know. It, it's spectacular. It is. And it, I haven't watched that scene in a long time. But that's the one with the music that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, God. Just the music Perfect. alone. It's perfect. It is. If that if the movie ever comes back to the music box and you can see it on the big screen. Go see that movie. Seventy movie. millimeter. Yeah, or just just the big, you know, even just a, it's you know, in scope, it's such a beautiful movie. Mm. It is, it is. All right, uh, I went with a spy movie here, oh. and I'm actually going James Bond. This is a bit of a cheat, because it's not in a cemetery, but there is a casket in the scene, um, and it's in New Orleans. So you could say the 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 city had the cemeteries are above ground. So, uh, in Live and Let Die, which was right in the middle of Roger Moore's run as Bond. Uh, the movie opens up with a funeral, a second-line procession through the streets of New Orleans. And there's a guy standing on the corner having a cigarette. He's a spy. Uh, and, and another man walks up to him as this, uh, you know, the brass band. And it's such a neat thing to see a, a funeral proces- procession in New Orleans. You have to see it if you haven't. Uh, and he says, the, the original guy smoking a cigarette says to the person that just walked up, whose funeral is it? And the guy says, yours and he stabs him to death right there in the street and the other the people who are carrying the casket come and just lower it on top of the body pick it back up and keep going like nothing happened such a cold-blooded violent moment even for a bond film i loved it hmm. i think that might have been roger moore's first bond movie was it we should uh, put that in the fish, fish tank. tank yeah throw that in the fish tank i, I think it was because it's you the one be where right. yafet koto is the bad guy it was because like, he was like it was Bond up in Harlem, so I think uh, right. I think that was the first one. Yeah, you could be we'll right. We'll find out. We'll find out. Uh, swings it over to my number two. I had this at, at number one um, for a while here. Two thousand and four. It's a Quentin Tarantino film, Kill Bill Volume Two, and this is the scene where they the, actually bury the bride. The who's cruel tutelage of Pyme. Uma Therma. Yeah. Uma Thurman in the casket alive, and a just watching them bury her as creepy as heck. And they put her down, they dump all that dirt back down on the casket. And what, what's his name? Pai Mei. Pai Mei. She, she got that punch. The one-inch punch. And all of a sudden, just that one-inch punch starts to pound at the casket. And the music that Tarantino uses there is just fantastic. It gets you so pumped as she starts to 
suddenly go through the wood and the dirt starts to come through the casket and then it cuts to the scene of the bride just going right through the soil and uh, of course a little comedy relief after that she's like walking across into a diner right after that yeah all covered in dirt dirt yeah. coming up from the grave but i love that moment in kill bill volume two one of my favorite scenes that's a great pick ryan thanks man yeah well done yeah all right, here it is. Number one pick for Cemetery Scenes, Jill. Again, trying to think outside the box, but one of the first ones that came into my mind was the cemetery scene, the burial of Don Corleone and The Godfather. And it's the scene where Tessio uh, comes up and tells Michael they want to make a meet, and that's how they know he's the traitor. And um, it's the reason, I, and the reason that's in my mind is because... Um, plug the uh my new show godfather of harlem i get to shoot in that cemetery in brooklyn nice but it's an amazing it's it's, it's you know it's it's an old new york cemetery it's huge um and it just goes on and on and on so but anyway that's a great scene and it's one of my all-time favorite movies too no arguments here man yeah that's you can't argue scene. with the godfather right <clears throat> right all right that brings it to my number one and i have a movie i'm, I'm sure ryan's never heard of i, I wonder oh, if joe's heard on. of this one it is known in the states as cemetery man but the original title is Della Morte Dell'Amore. It's an Italian... Rupert Everett? Yes. Yeah, yeah, oh my God. It is... Of course, Rupert Everett. It's one of the most surreal and sort of heady. Honestly, like, uh, it's a bit of a mind-bending zombie movie. At its heart, it's just a stupid zombie movie. But then it, it really asks some pretty deep existential questions toward the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. But the whole journey as you're getting there, um, there's, there's some pretty wild shenanigans going on. And the one I wanted to highlight in particular, um, this guy lives in the graveyard to put down reanimated corpses who might happen to pop up in the night. That's his job. And he has a, a, a friend slash assistant who's a grave digger, uh, mostly mute, uh, certainly a bit of a village idiot type character, falls in love with a girl who dies, and he takes it upon himself to exhume her body. What his intentions were, I won't speculate on. But uh, she is reanimated. She comes back to life, and as he's trying to lift her body out of the casket, her head comes off. So he doesn't skip a beat. He just keeps the head. <laughs> and there's a scene where he's making out with the head. The, oh, head, the head walks on its own somehow, and it attacks people when it gets thrown in the air. Great movie. That scene in particular, uh, a, a highlight for sure. <laughs> wow. It's a really good movie, Ryan. You have to write that down on your it, list. It is. It's, if you have it, it's, uh, check it out. Yeah, look at I'm writing it down. Okay. <laughs> My number one, I also went with a, a classic of sorts. And it's funny because we brought this one up when we did motorcycle scenes. And I was talking about how for a, a movie uh, of this magnitude, I have not talked about it much. But it also contains a great cemetery scene. And it's in New Orleans with the above ground graves. I'm speaking of Easy Rider which is where uh, it's basically known as the acid uh, graveyard yes. scene. Yeah. And, and when you're trying to make a movie about sort of the drug culture and, and the whole scene, to try to transport the audience, you, you need to have a, a moment like this in the graveyard with this um, you know, voiceover of them talking and they're, they're licking like the tomb, tombstones. and the, It is just a whacked out scene for a couple of minutes. You're like, what the heck is going on? And it gives you that, that headspace of like, yeah, 
these guys are high, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it totally works. It's like, wow, this is yeah. out there. And uh, again, I think it really does come down to the setting of being in one of those uh, New Orleans cemeteries. They're pretty special. They are. And I know when I was in New Orleans, I mean, you could just do tours of the cemeteries because they're all those above ground tombs. It's it's creepy. They're very it's famously haunted and mm-hmm. it's some pretty interesting people buried in New Orleans. I think Poe is buried there. I believe you're right. Yeah. Uh, Could be wrong. He might be Baltimore. I think he, well, he was, this, I spent some time in Baltimore. I know it's, he was lived there. He might be right about it. Well, throw Madame, that in the fish, fish tank. tank. We might as well. Madame Curie, though, right? The, the, the yes. voodoo practitioner. For sure. Yeah. 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 All right. So my number one easy writer, any honorable mentions not uh, come up on, on your list, Mitt? Old school, blues funeral, where, mm-hmm. where um, <laughs> Um, he's singing uh, Dust in the Wind. <laughs> That's a great one. It's, yeah, it's ridiculous and, and funny. Um, you know, I could name just about every zombie movie, but just one more. Return of the Living Dead, which is where the, the, the genre split. And a lot of people poo-poo it because it's not a Romero zombie movie, but I think it added more to the lore of zombies. This is the first time Zombies Eat Brains was in this movie, et cetera, et cetera. But the graveyard scene with the, the punk rock girl, Trash, she does this dance, um... It's, it's pretty uh, provocative, let's say. And, you know, anytime there's punks in a graveyard in a zombie movie, I'm pretty interested. Hmm. Um, other honorables for me, It's a Wonderful Life also has mm-hmm. the graveyard yeah. scene. Um, Back to the Future 2, more or less the same thing where... He sees his own grave. No, I think it's his dad. Okay. George McFly, but more or less that same idea. Um, and then, last but not least, I, I ripped the movie to shreds last year, The Nun, which was a spinoff of the oh, yes. Conjuring yeah. mm-hmm. movies. But the best scene in that movie is there's a little cemetery outside of the uh, convent, chapel, church, whatever thing is called, where the nuns are living, where a priest gets trapped into a coffin. Uh, one of the bodies comes alive, and that's where I was explaining they have those bells that would come out. Um, above all the, the, you know. Right, it was an old superstition. Right, yeah. in case you were buried alive, you could ring that bell. And yeah. so that comes into play. What about and that, that was Ryan really Reynolds, well done. What about that Ryan Reynolds film where he's in the coffin? Mm, but not so much a cemetery. Yeah, he's, he's in a coffin. Mm-hmm. Buried. Yeah. Well, I've been just along those lines that the original, the, was it The Vanishing, where the guy's buried alive inside mm-hmm. the. Every, every, the um, there was a remake, an American I saw the remake, remake. Chip, but the original Danish version was. When he wakes up inside the um, in the casket, and he's got the lighter, and he's trying. It's that was horrifying. Mm. But so if you can find the original, okay, that's worth seeing. There okay. we go. If we missed your favorite cemetery scene and you have Twitter pulled up, shoot us a tweet at CinemaJaw, or you can write us an email feedback at CinemaJaw.com. Listen to the rain come, Matt. Yeah, it's a deluge. When we come back, we are going to play some spy movie trivia plus a review of Hellboy. Stick with us. In honor of Cinema Jaws, Stephen King Month, Ryan, Matt, Corbin the Intern, and I float too. Hi, Georgie. Aren't you going to say hello? Oh, come on, bucko. Don't you want a balloon? supposed to say stuff to strangers. My dad said so. Very wise of your dad, Georgie. Very wise indeed. I, Georgie, am Pennywise the Dancing Clown. You are Georgie. 
So now we know each other. See, <laughs> right? I guess so. I gotta go. Go? Without this. My phone! Exactly. Go on, kiddo. Take it. Oh, you want it, don't you, Georgie? Oh, of course you do. And it's cotton candy and rides and all sorts of surprises down here. And balloons, too. All colors. Do they float? Oh, yes. They float, Georgie. They float. And when you're down here with me, you Hey Jawheads, it's Matt Kay with a quick reminder of this month's riddle. Here we go. My sister? Yeah, where is she now? Most of you first got to know me as a kid when I made a movie with my friends. Luckily, it wasn't a train wreck. If you see me at a party, come and talk to me. I will tell you what it was like to work with Coppola two different times. Later, I became a model and then a young horror writer. Nothing bad can happen because watching over me is none other than Angelina Jolie. Who am I? Write us at feedback at cinemajaw.com with your answer and one lucky jawhead will win a prize pack or the chance to take me on in trivia on an episode of Cinema Jaw. Good luck. Let's all go to the lobby. And we are back on Cinema Jaw, hanging out with director Joe Chappelle. Uh, we have not talked about Chicago Fire yet, and we actually had Joe Menuso, who is I, what, what's his Cast character's member. name on? His name he plays a character Joe Cruz. Joe Cruz. It was confusing because he's Joe Cruz on the show, but he's right. Joe Menuso. He came on here. Um, episode, I think three. Throw that in the fish tank, late fish tank. Um, and I know the topic was fire scenes in movies since it was mm -hmm. Chicago Fire. And one of the questions I asked Joe was when you're making a, a show like Chicago Fire that obviously has a lot of dangerous moments where you got fire going on, sure. you know, what are all the precautions? How does it go? And he answered it from an actor's standpoint. So I turned that question to you, being a director of Chicago Fire, uh, filming those scenes when there's fire going on, things exploding. How, what, what does it start with? Storyboards, where everybody's going to be? Take us through that process. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a, um, anytime fire is uh, used, you, it's the safety precautions, as they should be, um, are very, very involved. And you, you always just start with the storyboard. For, we start with the storyboard just for creative, and everybody signs off. Oh, this is creative. This is what we're going to do. We're lucky on a day when you. So this is one thing when you're storyboarding these fire scenes, we really can do safely. You have to imagine you're doing. You can do maybe one shot an hour. Wow! Because you have That's to go so through the the process and test it, and then once you get tested, you have to like it's either if it's going to be the actor or if it's going to be a stunt guy or a stunt woman in the scene. The, we have to kind of give them a, a, a you know walk them through it in a safe way, and so it, it's just all these safety steps. So when when you get handed a script that's got like a ton of fire scenes in it are you like oh no it's good you just know it's going to take forever wow and it, you know and they just and then and because there's always that constant tension in, in t television it's like you got nine days to do an episode well if they write a big fire scene it's going to take you know a day and a half just to do that scene or maybe two days 
And then so it's a negotiation with the writers, like, is this, how important is this fire in terms of the rest of your drama and your episode? And or then we have to go to the network and say, we need more time for this. We need an overage to cover this fire. So it's a it's not something you just get and you just show up on the day and shoot. It all has to be mapped out in advance. It's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. Now your uh, new television show that you're working on, The Godfather of Harlem, intriguing name right off the bat. I, I believe Forrest Whitaker. Yes. Is starring in this. What, yeah. what can you tell us about this? New, I can tell new you project? it's. Um, it's it's uh, based it's it's called Godfather Harlem. It's based it's based on a, a real life African American gangster, a guy named Bumpy Johnson, who basically ran Harlem uh, in from like the 30s through the 60s. And uh, our story the 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 show takes place in the in the in the mid 60s. And so it's uh, it's a gangster show because it's you know it's it's gangster. So it's the drug trade in Harlem, and it's Bumpy and. Uh, and he's African-American, and it's his dealings with the Italians who run, you know, who are kind of competing and also supplying him at the same time. So it's that. So it's definitely a great, I think it's going to be a great, you know, genre show. But what's really interesting about it is is that the, the backdrop is the civil rights movements of the 1960s. So Bumpy Johnson, the real Bumpy Johnson, he knew Malcolm X and was a friend of Malcolm X. So Malcolm X is a character on the show. Um, it's got a great cast. It's, uh, so it's Forrest Whitaker's Bumpy. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio plays uh, Vincent Gigante, who is the Italian mobster kind of running hard. You know, this is already great. It's yeah. great, right? Yeah. Giancarlo Esposito plays this very charismatic uh, congressman, a uh, real congressman, by guy named the guy by the name of Adam Clayton Powell, who was uh, this larger than life, you know, philandering, but still yet a brilliant, you know, representative for the people of Harlem. Uh, Paul Servino's in the show because of the gangster connection. Nice. Um, and it's and it's really really cool. And I have to say, you know, it's, although that that really high powered cast, there's one guy who you probably have not heard of, and uh, I had not heard of him. His name is Nigel Thatch, and he plays Malcolm X. and And if you would, if you've seen the movie Selma, he plays Malcolm in that movie. He plays Malcolm in our show, and you know he's so in in all these scenes, he's going against all these heavyweight actors, especially Forrest Whitaker, Academy Award winning actor, and Nigel is. You cannot take your eyes off this guy. Wow, um, he, he's I, if the show gets any attention, I hope it does wonders for his career because he's so riveting. So I, yeah, I'm really excited about the show. I, it's going to be on. It's going to be on Epix, uh, a subscription service. Um, start. Hope, I think what I heard last was it'll premiere in October. Nice. All right. Maybe so, we'll have to get you back uh, when it's. I would love out. to come back yeah. and talk about because I'm. It's really great and. Um, uh, I, I think you know if it finds its audience, it's gonna it's, it should do well. Well, the trailer's out, right? Well, there's a teaser trailer that was put out okay. uh, not that long ago. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll throw that in the show notes so everybody can get a taste. Awesome, awesome. great. And again, Jawheads, Joe's latest film, An Acceptable Loss, is out on video on demand anywhere you can rent your movies. So please do it. Yeah, you should. Before we get to trivia, and before we get to that Hellboy review, we did throw a few items into the fish tank, and I know Phil wants to swim up to the top. Let's open up that fish tank. Wait a moment! It's fish! Isn't it? DC! Wake up! Wake up! No, Pat, it's a giant glass bowl! Hey, get some fish, folks! Who's coming with me besides Flipper? Here. That's a second message. That means Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Hey, how's it going, guys? Uh, good to be out this week. 
I don't want to waste too much time up at the top. I will just say, uh, for Jawheads listening at home, a uh, fun drinking game for you uh, is f- throughout the fish tank how many times I said Joe was right. Uh, because the guy, I swear to God, the guy knows everything. Uh, Matt, you got to be scared for trivia. <clears throat> uh, uh, that being said, I'm going to start with one question I threw in here silently for myself uh, and any of the Jawheads who maybe have started listening since this happened or just maybe missed the episode. Uh, it was, when was Colleen on talking about an acceptable loss. Uh, and that was episode 411. Uh, it came out February 25th. Uh, and that, again, Joe talked about an acceptable loss. We also talked about it a, a little bit more in depth when Colleen was here originally in that episode, if you want to know more. Um, now, uh, onto the ones that you guys had thrown in. Uh, when did Night of the Living Dead come out? Uh, Joe was right on that one. It came out in 1968, so to the T. Uh, tumultuous year. A tumultuous yes, year. Yes, it was. I guess. I don't, I don't know anything yeah, about Phil, history. Phil wasn't alive then. Yeah. <laughs> Neither was I. Who knows Two assassinations. Yeah. Yes. Oh, see, I didn't do good in history. <laughs> um, when did Internal Affairs and King of New York come out? Uh, so Internal Affairs came out January 12th, 1990, and oh. King of New York uh, only a few months later, September of the same year, September 22nd. So you're right, right next to each other, huh? I, I, th- I, I thought it was the 80s, but um, it's 90s. Just barely. Just barely the 90s. Uh, when did Friday the 13th Part 6 Jason Lives come out? This one was 80s. This classic came out uh, August 1st, 1986. There you go. I knew it. Good one. Uh, here we have one. Uh, which, uh, number, which number movie of James Bond was Live and Let Die for Roger Moore? Uh, again, Joe was right. It was his first. Huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I thought, I thought <clears throat> Octopussy was the first one for Roger Moore. No, uh, it was, no. That was later. Huh. Uh, yeah, so Live and Let Die was first in 73, followed by uh, Man with the Golden Gun, 74, and uh-huh. then Spy Who Loved Me, 77. Oh, Octopussy was late more. Yeah, it yeah. was 80s. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Matt, you were way off. Again, not, not boding well for <laughs> trivia. <laughs> and I'm usually dead on with the Bond stuff. Um... And it's spy trivia. I, I, I'm sweating right. here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where is Edgar Allan Poe buried? Uh, and he died and was buried in Baltimore, Maryland. Joe was right. Another one, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's just because I worked there for a couple of years. I, I'm so as I knew that. Um, and then our, our last minute question thrown in here. Uh, what was the episode that Joe Manuso came on on? Uh, that was almost exactly a year ago. That was May 7th, 2018 for episode 371. Uh, mm. And that was best fire scenes, just like Ryan said. That was a good one. That huh. was everything, Phil. That's all. Jump back in that fish tank. Will do. All right, Matt. Uh, brings us to Hellboy, a big red demon with good intentions who saws off his horns to fit in, might not sound like the best comic book character to make a film adaptation of. However, in 2004, in the hands of Guillermo del Toro, he was perfect. His story is filled with gory action scenes as he fends off dark forces with some dry, dark humor mixed in for kicks. Having just watched the original, it's easy to say del Toro and Ron Perlman got it perfectly right. But not even that stops Hollywood from rebooting. So in steps David Harbour as Hellboy. I took the elevator down to the last floor on Earth to see if this reboot had anything new to offer. Why do you fight for those who hate and fear you? You were meant for this. Out of the ashes... 
Matt, it's only been 15 years since the first Hellboy, so I am wow. happy to only? report that this new film is not, is not a straight-up reboot and retelling of the original. We do get a flashback to Hellboy's origin, but it's quick. The main storyline, that of the Blood Queen, played by Mila Jovovich, being put back together to reign over Earth is completely new. That said, the story and tone of this film are the same as the Del Toro versions. I must mention, this one is rated R compared to the first two films at PG-13. So we get a little more blood, a little more gore here. The central plot, as I mentioned, concerns the Blood Queen who was dismembered and had her body parts buried in various parts of England. A giant pig warrior, that's right, a pig warrior, is uncovering her body parts in an attempt to put her back together again. Will it work? And if so, what does she want with Hellboy? Yes, the story is a little out there, and definitely not as engaging as the first Hellboy film and story, but I was fine with it in general. Director Neil Marshall tries to follow, uh, follow in Del Toro's footsteps and make the action sequences gory, dark, and fun, and for the most part succeeds, but let's be honest, you can't pull off a Del Toro. As for David Harbour, as our man in red, solid, very solid. I know a lot of people love Ron Perlman's take on it, but I had no issue with the new Hellboy here. Where I think it suffers the fact we just did not need another Hellboy movie right now. It did not do anything vastly different with the character. It did not send the character or his story arc in a brand new direction. And it did not do enough to warrant its own existence as a movie. If you like gory action scenes with some grotesque creatures, see it. For the rest of us, skip it and watch the original on Netflix. First of all, I have to applaud your use of del Toro as a verb. <laughs> That's awesome. How is Mila Jovovich? That's she's, what I want to know. She's a highlight in here as well. She Not hasn't done much. Time. I know. And I think she could play the villain like this, you know, like a blood queen. That sounds cool. It, it was really interesting. And I was so glad. So what I, I was telling our intern, Corbin, before everybody got here, I was talking, hey, we saw this movie. I said, well, I, I sort of did myself in here by watching the original Hellboy on Monday night right before the screening of this new Hellboy and I think I just had too much Hellboy you I think there there is a case you can have too much it was saw it saw it again and I was like Ugh, I've seen enough of this the tone and everything's the same with these ridiculous you know scenes is of, Abe Sapien in this I don't want to spoil everything oh okay All right. yeah he, he's not a, a main character in the movie I'll say that okay fair enough yeah that probably means yes he's in it <laughs> well, you know, nowadays they can never make a movie. I'd love to. I was thinking about this when I walked out of Hellboy, and this is not spoiling anything. Same with Pet Cemetery. I'd love to know the percentage of films that end without hinting that there's a sequel. That's an interesting question because I bet you it's near zero, right? Well, not quite. Obviously, there's still some that are, at, you know, it's definitely that's its own movie. But I would say 
80% of the movies we're seeing now leave it open to more or less a, some type of... And Why no wouldn't doubt, you? Why Hellboy wouldn't you? clearly does, and Pet Cemetery does. Is there an after-credit scene? There is an after-credit scene. That's another thing. It introduces That's... another character. It's the same exact what we're, we're used to seeing. You know? Wow. I mean, how things have changed. And you said only 15 years ago? Like, that's like yesterday. I can't believe it's been that long. 15 years? It does years? not seem that long. No. 2004. That's crazy. Um, for for a, a great scene that I did want to highlight is there's this weird scene where he's got to fight three very large giants. And I thought special effects-wise it was really well done. And again, because it's rated R, he can really knock these giants off in some very gross and gory ways. That probably is it R for violence or is there sex? Violence. Or? Okay. All for violence. Wow. So it, you could just imagine the, the death scenes as grotesque and and perfect as they are in del toro's version they're just amplified a little bit more here and i don't know i'm necessarily, down with that but i don't know if that's a great thing it's not like wow you have to see it because of that but i think they needed and wanted to take those liberties to explore that a little bit more that's interesting i mean the property's not necessarily known for, as like a violent ultra violent property like the comics and such the sure it's there but it's not like like an action comic it's more thinky I was sitting next to our, our critic friend, Jeff York, who's been on the show. Sure. I w he was a couple seats down from me, and he was laughing out loud at, at many times. In a Definitely. mocking way or enjoying? No, he loved it. Oh, I mean, great. he was laughing hard. So <clears throat> for those that like this kind of humor, it's, it's in there. I'm going two Jaws for the new Hellboy. All right. Fair enough. Didn't hate it. Didn't hate it. It's the middle of the rotor. Yeah. All right. It brings us to trivia. Everybody loves to go out on a good contest of trivia. It's fun. In honor of Red Joan, we are playing spy movie trivia. It works like this, Joe. You're our guest. You get to choose if you want to go first. Let Matt go first. There are steals, and if you get hung up on any question, you get one trip into the fish tank for Phil, me, and Phil. They start off easy. Uh, Matt, go first. Wow. All right. He defers. Question number one over to Matt. I said they start off easy, so don't be mad at me, Joe. Question one over to Matt K. The Mission Impossible movies center around Ethan Hunt. Who plays him in all six films? Tom Cruise. Nice and easy. I like to get everybody comfortable. <laughs> Unless <laughs> maybe he pulls his face off and it's somebody else under Question there. Question two over to Joe. The Spy Who Shagged Me was another Austin Powers movie. What actor plays Austin Powers? Mike Myers. All right. We get the easy ones. Everybody's comfortable. Now, yeah. question three over to Matt Kay. In the 1994 Jamie Lee Curtis, Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Tom Arnold, also in the movie, what was the name of it? True Lies. Two to one. Question four over to Joe. Name the actor who plays the lead agent, Harry Hart, in The Kingsman, The Secret Service. I can see him. I cannot. Oh, my. Colin Firth. Well done. Two to two. We got a good ball game brewing here. Question five over to Matt K. Matt, Thunderball was a name of a James Bond film in which Bond tries to find two stolen atomic bonds. What actor portrayed James Bond oh, in Thunderball? Man, now, now my Bond confidence is all shot to hell. <laughs> Thunderball. All right, just just a process of elimination. That's an older one. I... I I'm seeing the case of the VHS in my mind, and I'm pretty sure it was actually Sean Connery. Was Sean Connery? I don't know what number Bond that was, but it was probably five or four, yeah, somewhere was, in there. Mm 
It's Later after, in Connery's it's, it's run, It's after right? Goldfinger. I know that. Okay. There we go. Three to one, Matt K. Question six over to Joe. Alfred Hitchcock directed this 1935 film that was then remade in 1951. It is about Richard Hanny, who becomes caught up in preventing an organization of spies from stealing British military secrets. Name it. So, can I, so is, um, I'm going to use my, uh, my life on it. Wow. Into the fish tank we go. Phil, what was the name of Alfred Hitchcock's 1935 spy film? All righty, Joe. Uh, your clue this week? If you follow this clue step by step, you're going to get the right answer. The 39 steps. Good clue, Phil. Yes, that was excellent. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> Everybody perfect here. Three to three, last two questions. This is how I like like it to go, Matt. Okay. Question seven, over to you. Jack Ryan is a character that has been portrayed by many actors. Yes. Who played him most recently on the big screen in the film Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit? Oh, man, you couldn't give me the TV question? The Jim from The Office is playing him now, isn't he? Um, Shadow Recruit. Man, I think it was somebody lame. I'm going to go to the fish tank. Wow, back-to-back trips into the fish tank we go. Phil, who played Jack Ryan in Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit? Alrighty, Matt. Your clue this week. He is the captain of the Enterprise. Chris Pine? Good clues by Phil all uh, the way around here. I will say, I was this close to giving you a clue. He's definitely not lame, but <laughs> I, that, he's definitely it was because not I was lame. a little salty. I don't know. I was thinking Gerard Butler or something. Well, here it is. <laughs> oh, boy. Four to three. Last question of the game. Joe, you can tie it up here. Oh, no. Oh, boy. Here we go. We all know that Matt Damon played Jason Bourne, okay? But what actor played Alex Conklin, the head of Treadstone, and the ultimate villain in the first Bourne Identity film? In the first one. In the first one. He was the head of Treadstone. I am going to guess... Well, I'm not, I, it's, it's one of a couple actors. I'm going to say Chris Cooper. Wow. 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 Nice. Yes. I would not have even had a guess. I, I was thinking, was it Tommy Lee Jones? Was it Chris? So, so Chris I, Cooper, good. I'm re- yes. I, I thought you were going to go with the Jeremy Renner question That's there. what I thought, too. That's what I thought we were going with that one. This has not happened in a long time. We end the game four to four. Everybody perfect. So it comes down to a jawbreaker. All right. Well, I'm happy with this, the tie, for the too. record. Can we? We no. can shake now. We can shake now. <laughs> this jawbreaker. <laughs> the question goes over just to... just hands. The jawbreaker is this, Joe. Daniel Craig, best James Bond of all time or no? He's great, but it's Connery. That's wrong. No, Daniel you're wrong. It's, no, it's, it's Daniel Craig. It's Sean Connery, I'm for kidding, God's I'm sake. Kidding. The real jawbreaker is this. Age of Mike Myers, closest to. Matt, you got to guess on Mike. And we're not talking about Michael Myers, the No, the we're talking killer. about <clears throat> the spy who shagged me actor. Uh, man, he's, I, I would put him in his mid to late 50s. I'll say speed limit, 55. Joe, you got a guess? That's exactly where I was going to go. Uh, I'll, I'll say 56. 55 years old. That's right. <sighs> wow. You guys were right on top of that one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh that, was a, that was officially that was a, a tie. Heck, yeah, yeah, that was. That was a heck of a game of that trivia was. right there. Good stuff. Good stuff. Oh, always ends on a high note. <laughs> For sure. It's fun. Love it. All right. Brings us to the end of a very fun jaw. Indeed. Yes. First it? and foremost, we got to thank our guest, Joe. Thanks for coming on Cinema Jaw. Uh, guys, it was great. Thank you for having me. Uh, we also got to thank our engineer, the guy over there, turning all the knobs, pressing the buttons, Phil me and Phil. 
Oh, yeah. Always happy to help. Thank you, guys. Also got to thank our sponsors. Yes. Thanks to the Chicago Podcast Co-op, who help us get cool sponsors like Cards Against Humanity. If you would like to support Cinema Jaw, the easiest way to do so is leave us a review wherever you are listening to this podcast. And while you're there, click subscribe. It's one extra click, and it helps us out tremendously. Until next week, I'm Rye the Movie Guy. I'm Matt Kay, and, and keep, keep on, on John about, about the, the movies. movies.